housing policy in America is inextricably linked with employment opportunities, small businesses, and access to education that directly impact economic opportunity for individuals and communities. Understanding the history of low-income housing in America is key to understanding and reimagining housing policy today. On this episode of Hardly Working, I'm joined by Howard Husak to discuss his new book, The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It. The book lays out a history of American housing policy and a thesis on how low-income housing that allows for private ownership can serve as a gateway to upward mobility, rather than miring individuals and families in concentrated intergenerational poverty. Hugh Sock is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on urban housing policy, civil society, and municipal government. He's held positions at the Manhattan Institute, the Harvard Kennedy School, and has worked as an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. We discuss the history of low-income housing in America, the loss of social capital in low-income neighborhoods, and how public policy interventions can either advance or constrain economic and social progress. You can find Howard's book on the AEI website. Howard Husak, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thank you very much, Brent. Great to have you here. You and I have actually known one another and moved in the same policy circles for a lot longer than I think either of us would like to admit, I think. <laughs> I think I first got to know you while you were at the Manhattan Institute, and I was working on prisoner reentry-related issues at the Labor Department. And anyway, it's just been a, a great professional relationship and a great friendship, too, so I'm glad you could join us. So let's talk about you first. How did a, a nice guy like you wind up as an expert on urban housing policy, municipal government, civil society, and philanthropy? What's that professional trajectory look like? Well, I guess I'll talk about housing since that's, that's the, the focus of uh, the book, the, the Poor Side of Town. I mean, more broadly, I'm fundamentally a journalist type. Mm. And, you know, I've had the privilege of conducting a lot of my education in public, as journalists do. I've moved from the hardcore 60s left to, I guess, the center right at AEI along the way. I just have a really checkered past, I think we'd have to say. <laughs> you know, I was a small town newspaper reporter. I became a TV news reporter. I became a documentary filmmaker for public television, later served on the board of directors of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which was my revenge on public broadcasting. Uh, <laughs> I had the very good fortune of uh, getting a, a scholarship to the uh, what was then called the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, now just the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, I think. That kind of launched me in a more rigorous public policy direction. But as far as housing, it was a lot of personal observation uh, in the Boston area, where I lived for almost 40 years, moving between alternative journalism, WGBH, the Kennedy School of Government, and you know, I, I I got involved in rent control debates at the local level, so that drew me deeply into housing, and and I began to observe the built environment, and it really fascinated me. You know, there was public housing in Boston, like so many other places, but there were these wooden three-family houses that are just ubiquitous in Boston and New England, and I got really curious about them. Like, when were they built? What was the sociology associated with them? Who lived in them then and now? And I think that as much as anything, that curiosity about the built environment and its sociology and demography kicked me off toward this book. 
I think that is so interesting. And I share your fascination with uh, built environment questions. I just, you know, whenever I'm in a new city in particular, I, I love just looking at structures, you know, and thinking about, you know, if they're skyscrapers, wow, what was that project like to put that up? But also these, you know, residential communities that are old. I mean, as old as the country anyway. Uh, and I just think it's so fascinating to think about the people who live there, what they did while they were living there, you know, the all the history, both the national history and the local history and the personal history of the people I, I who regard, live there. I regard the built environment as a memo from the past. Mm. It's, it's, it's the goal of, of scholars and enthusiasts to decipher it. We're going to get deep into the topics of your book, but I want to relate this to your career path because it, it, I mean, it's obviously fascinating. Somebody who's done the range of work that you, you have done. What's the virtue do you think of being a generalist in a society that values expertise the way that ours does? Well, I, I think it's a struggle to a certain extent. And I, I am a generalist and, and, I just have a wide range of interests. You know, the papers I've published since coming to AEI range from municipal recycling to, you know, uh, donor advised funds, uh, you know, and, and I mean, I'm really interested in music, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I could, and I've written about music. So I, I think we are at some pains to demonstrate that even when one is a generalist, one has developed sufficient expertise to be take it seriously. I don't think we could say, oh, yeah, the expert class, I don't care. Mm -hmm. It's not a luxury we have. And it, it has really struck me. I had the great good fortune of knowing both uh, Edward Banfield and, and Nathan Glazer at Harvard. And both of them were incredible generalists. Uh, you know, Banfield on, uh, you know, he wrote about the unheavenly city and urban riots, but he also wrote about uh, uh, honor culture in Sicily. Mm -hmm. And Glazer wrote about education, about architecture, immigration. I don't think either of those guys could get tenure today. And yet they're some of the great social thinkers uh, of the 20th century. Yeah, I wouldn't want to make it about, you know, uh, expertise doesn't matter. I think it matters a lot. Um, I think we need to have people who are really deep in various policy and, and other topic areas. I just wonder whether the role of the generalists in terms of helping to link those expertise, you know, link across expertise is not, it's not really regarded as a form of expertise itself, it regarded enough as a, a form of expertise itself. And I, th I personally think it's just invaluable to, especially the task of public policy, because public policy, any individual public policy question, as I think we'll find out as we talk about housing connects to innumerable other topic areas um, that you have to that you have to take into consideration. No, I, I agree with that. And, you, you know, David Brooks tries to make that his role at The New York Times. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Etzel at The New York Times also translating, popularizing. Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize winning economist, wrote a regular column for Newsweek, which was then a famous and existing magazine in a print edition. So he was not above popularizing. I will say in the time I spent in the academy, uh, if you're a popularizer, you're not well regarded, though. Right, right. No, I, I, my academic colleagues, when I hear them refer to a book as a popular volume, they're usually not extending a compliment. 
there's a little tinge of jealousy in there, I think, um, for people who who do succeed on the popular side. But it's also like, you know, there's they know how much is not being said. Um, and so they they have concerns, which I which I respect. I once yeah. had a fascinating encounter with Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I wrote a paper about the the emergence of uh, single parenthood as a respectable topic to discuss and compared that with the the reaction to his his famous uh, study mm -hmm. of, of what was he then called the Negro family. And in my paper, I referred to his rather accessible writing style as journalistic. Mm. Great offense. Mm. Great offense. Wrote me a handwritten letter as if that was that he was dumbing it down or some something like that. Mm -hmm. I I said I didn't understand that use of the word. That was my own unletteredness, but uh, that's how he viewed it. Yeah, Moynihan's writing had and speaking actually had that he had that capacity to blend a very high brow kind of insight into policy issues with a language that was easy for non-experts to understand I, that. And I think that that's a gift, <laughs> not something that uh, anybody should take offense at. OK, well, let's move on to your book, this fantastic book, The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It. Can you give us sort of chunk out the history in five minutes of U.S. public housing and tell us Sort of what have been the major trends that have informed it? How has it evolved? Uh, can you just walk us through that? Well, the book takes a very expansive view of the origins of public housing, which, of course, started to be built in the 30s, took off with a vengeance in the 40s and 50s. But I, I deep try to look more deeply at the intellectual currents that led to this idea that the private sector fails the poor, fails to house the poor, and must be replaced. Uh, and I go back to Jacob Rees and, uh, as one of a series of key figures. Rees, of course, wrote the, the really quite legendary book, How the Other Half Lives, which was his expose of uh, living conditions on the immigrant Lower East Side in the 1890s. The book was published in 1894. And I see Rees as having laid the groundwork for this idea of, of market failure when it comes to uh, housing the poor. And I take issue with him as my beginning to take issue with the whole public and subsidized housing movement, which continues today. So Reese, people don't understand or don't know, was not a sociologist. There wasn't really such a thing. He was a police reporter. He was the most successful police reporter in New York. He specialized in dead body found, kidnap, ransom note received. And he understood how to shock middle-class readers and sell newspapers. So he was the originator of if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, okay. And, yeah. and he, he tied that to flash photography, the beginnings of flash photography. And he took actually physical chances going out with these powders and whatnot to take these flash photographs. But he married all of that in this shocking book, How the Other Half Lives, of children in dark alleys, of, of, of families without their own private baths or adequate windows and sunlight. And his aim was to shock. And he did shock. But in the process, he muckraked and convinced a lot of people 
that these kind of neighborhoods, these slums, were pernicious. They were an environment that would breed immorality and ongoing poverty. And he inspired zoning reformers and the early housing, public housing intellectuals. And so I go from Reese to a guy named Lawrence Veillet, who was the avatar of zoning. But let's bracket him for a moment and talk about Catherine Bauer. Catherine Bauer took this idea that gov government needed to replace two thirds of the housing market. That's what she believed. Frank Lloyd Wright called her communist Catherine. And she wrote a book called Modern Housing in 1936. And modern housing was government housing. It was Le Corbusier style blocks, towers in a park. It had rotogravure pictures of housing projects in Moscow. I'm not even making that up. And she became one of the founding officials in the Federal Housing Administration in the New Deal and wrote the National Housing Act of 1937. This is an incredibly influential figure who's fallen into obscurity. And it was her being convinced of this market failure idea that uh, led to the earliest public housing projects. But then that impulse got married to urban renewal. The belief by uh, city leaders in many cities that the decline of certain neighborhoods, because they became low income and they weren't as well maintained as they might have wanted, or just because they were extremely modest, densely populated. These were slums that need that embarrassed the city. We need to get rid of them. We need to level them, clear them, and build housing projects, planned communities of various kinds. And this impulse, so well exposed by somebody else I feature at length in the book, Jane Jacobs, raised, that's with a Z, lower income neighborhoods of all ethnic groups, but especially minority African-American groups who were, I assert in the book, robbed of wealth in ways that we continue mm. to live with today. Right. Robbed of wealth again. That's very, very interesting. So what were they so embarrassed about? What were these city leaders? What was the, was it the age of the neighborhoods? Was it the architecture? Was What was it that they were wanting to get out of the way? Or was it too crowded? I mean, what, what, what were they, what was their objective? Well, I think Reese had laid the groundwork for this idea that density per se is a bad thing. And crowded is a bad thing. And I think if you ask the average American, is high density and overcrowding a bad condition that we should ameliorate, they would still say yes. And I think that the, the, the city leaders in, in cities like Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland, Chicago, all over New York, certainly, where we ended up with 172,000 units of public housing still standing, they were averse to the hustle and bustle, the dynamism and the Dirt, the litter, the the helter skelterness mm. of unplanned urban life that we we know anybody who knows Ed Glazer's work or other people who have written admiringly about cities, especially Jane Jacobs. That's the magic of cities. That's what makes cities the pinnacle of the human ecosystem. But there was an anti-urban impulse. And remember, this was the rise of suburban era in America, nineteen fifty. 
They wanted to make the cities look like the suburbs. They thought that would be a comparative marketing advantage. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting compared to what we how we think about cities now in which, you know, cities and their agglomeration effects are that are is or has been the city's comparative advantage, getting a lot of people into one place, uh, stacking them up into apartment buildings and uh, office towers. This has been the model for American prosperity, really, especially in the last 20 years. We've heard so much about the resurrection of the big city as a kind of centerpiece of prosperity and of, uh, you know, as a driver of not just for the people who live in the city, but the entire country that completely swung back the other direction then. Um, but in the meantime, we'd done all of this damage to what you call the poor side of town in the process. Yeah. And, and I, I was exposed to it. I'll get back to a slight personal note. You know, I served as a very minor local official in the town of Brookline, Massachusetts, which has an elected town meeting. I was one of 256 town meeting members. We had to vote the budget every year. And what struck me was the incredible range of types of people in this citizen legislature, doctors, lawyers, a literally Nobel level uh, uh, genetic scientists serving in the same body as the custodian at my children's school. Mm. laborers and sanitation workers for the Department of Public Works. And that was because there was a poor side of town. It had once actually been larger and had been a lot of it torn down. And that that got my attention and made me start Mm. thinking. But to see these people interact in a shared polity in Mm. which they had shared purpose, that actually created civility. You, you You saw people of all backgrounds rise to the occasion in debate. And I found that moving. And when we don't have that kind of interaction, it's a real loss. You know, we talk about all this sorting that goes on. It's a real loss. So you talked, there was one figure that you said you wanted to bracket and come back to. How does, did you want to say Well, I wanted to talk about about zoning. And so the intellectual progeny of Jacob Reese, one stream, if you will, is public housing, government, construction, and ownership in which I would emphasize, nobody can own anything. You're always a renter. Think about that. And the other stream from Reese was zoning. Let's make sure that we don't have too much density, even when we have private construction. Let's separate the commercial, the retail, the industrial from the residential in a way that they had all been intermingled. Let's separate single family from more dense forms of housing. And that laid the groundwork for what became his acolyte was a man named Lawrence Veillet, who started something called the National Housing Betterment Association. And this gentleman was what I call the Johnny Appleseed of zoning. He went all around the country selling the idea of a zoning code. He became the executive director of a special commission at the federal level created by Herbert Hoover to lay out a model zoning code and sell it to the local communities. Hoover was a, a technocrat rather than not, mm-hmm. just a, not a plutocrat, as he's pictured sometimes. And that became incredibly powerful, along with this other stream of subsidized and public housing. Even more widespread, single family zoning became the norm. And that was the death of the poor side of town, the smaller homes on smaller lots that create what I call natural affordability, essentially got outlawed. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, right? I mean, it's this idea of plant, centralized planning. There were many aspects of American society that were infected with planning as an unchallengeable good, whether it was education, the economy, housing, obviously, cities, zoning. There was this fetishization of, of coming up with a plan that will work. I come from the Portland, Oregon area. And this is a, a, a current example of what happens with too much zoning in which the state imposed, state of Oregon back in the 70s imposed an urban growth boundary around the Portland area and said, no, you, you can't build subdivisions beyond this boundary. Now, the boundary gets adjusted a little bit here and there every year. A few new parcels open up. But for the most part, it's all been backfill development, which if you're from there and you're living in the city, it's nice because you're a half an hour or 40 minutes max to a truck farm during the summer. You can get all of your fresh fruits and vegetables and it's very nice. But if you are not, if you're not middle class or above, it's just about impossible to own a home because the the, the supply is so constrained. So this Anyway, this fetishization of planning, it lives on, right? We've created problems with planning uh, in the housing market, and we continue to deepen those problems with planning. Is that your, is that your take? Right. And, and implicit, inherent in that insight is the fact that some people think they know better than others about how everybody should live and are willing to promulgate regulations that enforce their views. That was what Le Corbusier did with the idea of, we'll have a new city with towers and no streets. No streets. We're going to get rid of streets. And how would people move around then? Like skyways or what? what yes, was the, absolutely. Yeah. In cars. Or they would have to walk to transit or something. But if you look at the public housing projects, the classic ones, there are no streets. They're mm-hmm. only campuses, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So... Jane Jacobs has the greatest line, again, and this is in Death and Life of Great American Cities, which some people think they understand. It's about eyes on the streets, about so much more than that. Yeah, yeah. Before you go into that, we'll just back up and tell everybody who Jane Jacobs was. I'll intro her by saying her insight vis-a-vis planning was the flaw of this lies in the fact that there will be then nobody's plans but the planners. And that is, was the problem with the Soviet Union. But Jacobs, who I call the ultimate housing unreformer, was a high school graduate from Scranton, PA, more important than Joe Biden in American history, in my opinion. We'll see how this works out, talking about Scranton natives. And she was a really self-taught, going back to your first question, how do you become a self-taught housing expert? She did it. She was a journalist. I really admire Jane Jacobs a lot and find her to be an inspiring figure. You know, she worked, one of her clients, if you her outlets as a journalist, became Architectural Forum. And she got very interested in this whole urban renewal situation and observed it firsthand. And one of the great stories that she tells is this. She went to Philadelphia to write an article about Edwin Bacon, who was the Robert Moses of Philadelphia, the chief planning honcho. He literally is the father of Kevin Bacon. So Mm. there's one degree of separation there. (laughs) He took her to the old bad side of poor, I'm calling the poor side of town. So look how dirty this is, Jane. She goes, "Uh uh-huh. 
And then he took her to his gleaming new projects. See how we've improved. And she said, just one thing, Ed, where are all the people? They were sterile. He had created sterility. Mm. And Jacobs then went on to a brilliant career, not only just critiquing urban renewal, but wrote a brilliant book called The Economy of Cities and Cities and the Wealth of Nation. This trio of books I recommend to anybody who's interested in how cities thrive and how humankind thrives. And uh, she understood that planning when it comes to, we'll recruit the next big industry to our town and then we'll be prosperous. No, Seattle didn't think that a coffee shop was going to be the next big thing, but Starbucks took over the world, mm-hmm. right? So cities, through their housing, through the interplay between the commercial and the residential, through the mix of people types, they hatch new ideas. New ideas need old buildings, she said, mm-hmm. for cheap rent, for that collegiality. So a brilliant, brilliant thinker. Uh, and this trio of books, Death and Life of Great in American Cities, The Economy of Cities, and Cities in the Wealth of Nations, stand unparalleled in their insights. I hadn't heard of the last one, Cities in the Wealth of Nations. I need to read that. Those are all pointing back, actually, to Adam Smith, who you know, tells us that it's the organic nature of human exchange right. that, that generates value both social value and financial uh, economic value. Uh, and when we interfere with that exchange, we are interfering with the very essence of how human beings generate prosperity for themselves and opportunity for themselves. And so this, you know, this idea of going into these areas of New York and Robert Moses saying, well, that, that needs to go because I have a highway to build here and it's going to make everybody's life better. And we're going to level this because it's kind of ugly. It doesn't really serve much in the way of any purpose that we can discern. Uh, and so we'll just get rid of it. And in doing that, of course, you disrupt, you destroy this very intricate, fragile wonderful fabric of human exchange that's going on that is actually the the substratum that nourishes the whole project. Right. I I, I wouldn't want to to, uh, assert that public projects or highways or transit should never be built because it would take parts of old cities away. Things change and public needs do surface. But Moses built and his and his successors built 324 public housing projects in New York that still stand. They leveled residential neighborhoods, not to build highways, but to replace them with this government-owned housing in which there could be, by definition, and this is a term I, I try to highlight in the book, what I call owner presence. Not only does it owner-occupy, but it may be rentals in the same building where the owner, and this is, I think, important in your your own work on uh, upper mobility and and the preconditions for it, the idea that you could save money and ultimately buy the building that your landlord is in, that owning a building is even a thing, that it was so important. And it's the lesson of owner presence. And that's what was wiped out by government ownership of housing. 
I really want to get to that. I want to hear you grapple a little bit with the critics of that position. Before we get there, though, I want to explore one more angle on the community side of things, which is a concept you talk about in the book a lot, mutual aid. What is, historically, what is mutual aid and what role did it play in the development of cities? When immigrants, and this includes Black immigrants from the South coming to the North, gathered in so-called ethnic enclaves in the pre-safety net era, they created community institutions to fund such basic needs as the costs of burial, to fund free loan associations to help each other start businesses, to provide for charitable needs of a whole range. And so looking out for each other was aiding each other mutually, therefore the name mutual aid. And every ethnic group had these kinds of associations, and some of them transcended uh, ethnic groups. So my point in highlighting them, and, and, and I, just, I, I just get almost tear up at looking at the number of mutual aid groups that existed in Black Detroit that were wiped out. And there are a lot of, frankly, white conservatives who criticize Black culture as lacking this. You know, but it had the Urban League, it was its most active chapter was in Detroit to help, in which wealthy, established African-Americans helped new immigrants from the South adjust to urban life. It had the Booker T. Washington Chamber of Commerce of Black businessmen. It had the Phyllis Wheatley Home for Aged Colored Women. These were all mutual aid organizations literally physically wiped out by urban renewal. And, you know, and now too many, I think, white conservatives lambaste Black culture for lacking these kinds of mm. uh, things. Well, it had them and it, to a certain degree, still has them and needs to be appreciated for that. Yes. Social security came along. Yes, unemployment compensation came along. I think those are important developments that are worth defending. I don't think everybody should be thrown on their own resources. At the same time, when it comes to lending in a mutual aid context, which, for instance, Korean immigrants are famous for, we have to understand that the very process, or even other nonprofit groups like park conservancies or library associations or PTAs, all of these things which are ubiquitous in American life, they're forms of mutual aid. We have to understand that the very process, it's not only what they accomplish, their very process of being, of interacting amongst people, fostering interaction amongst people, that is an accomplishment. And it creates social trust, and that creates safe neighborhoods. So. Mutual aid is not only what it does, it's a process which is important to appreciate and understand and to see as a good in community. Yeah, I think we have a hard time conceptualizing today the importance of place. Sometimes, you know, that that all of the things that you're talking about are not just a function of somebody with a good idea who organizes a bunch of people to do something on for themselves and on behalf of the other people in their community. It's the community itself. It's the geographic, geographically bounded place that makes that cooperation possible. And if you disrupt the geography, 
you're not just disrupting the geography of the buildings and so on, but you're disrupting these, again, these very delicate and critical social networks um, that inhabit those neighborhoods. And I just, it's just not a, it's not on our minds because we think we've been liberated from geography. It's not important to our existence. We can live anywhere. We can work anywhere. We can do, you know, what we want, where we want. And to a certain degree, that's true uh, for some of us. But geography really mattered, especially for these immigrant groups, African-American migrants, um, and so on, that there was nobody to backstop everything else. You had to do it yourself. Yeah, and I think people are still, still Americans still have a strong sense of place. I think cosmopolites like you and me, Brent, if I mm. might be so bold as to say that, feel we can move anywhere. But personally, I've always wanted to be a rooted person, to participate in local government. And I think that that's one of the unique features of, dare I say it, American exceptionalism, is that we are so decentralized in terms of our governance, and that that encourages community institutions. And we shouldn't throw that out by making everything a federal program that has to be evidence-based. You know, so people's attachment to place, you know, I was just in Pittsburgh, the, the number of museums founded by Pittsburgh philanthropists that still go on, you know, these are, are heartwarming and mm -hmm. popular. So, right. and I think that the, that, that's why we saw such a backlash against the closing of so many factories and the outsourcing to China is an undermined place. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about homeownership. And you've, you've hit on this a little bit, but let's, let's lay it out carefully. What role does ownership play in community stability? I think that ownership is a signal to your neighbors that you have something profound in common. You're in a conspiracy, a positive conspiracy of shared values. We all put a down payment down on these structures. We're all in it for those homes who at least hold their value and maybe increase. We're all willing to work together to keep the streets clean and the schools good as part of this virtuous circle. And home ownership is one of the key links in that virtuous circle, because it gives you skin in the game. So, I mean, there has been some discussion of late that we're too invested in this idea of home ownership. Maybe coming at it from more of an economic standpoint is why people can do perfectly well renting. You know, they why should everybody own their own property? It's not really necessary. It's you know, we subsidize it. We you know, we use the tax code. We distort the market in housing through these kinds of subsidies? Does, is there a downside to home ownership? Well, first of all, uh, I'm not a big fan of the mortgage interest deduction. I'm not a big fan of the deduction for state and local taxes. I'm not in favor of these kind of distortions in the housing markets. I'm, you know, I'm a kind of a free marketeer in that regard. And they actually tend to push up housing prices for obvious economic reasons. But if you look in a very... Um, I think blinkered, economically blinkered way at home ownership, then you say, well, well, yeah, they don't always appreciate. Look what happened in the financial crisis. Well, and that's true. That's true. Some people may be at stages of their life when it makes sense for them to rent. That's true. Mm -hmm. But when you put down roots in a place, I think owning is an important uh, aspect of that. 
And historically, it has been a key means of wealth accumulation. I, I think you don't want to look at it solely mm. in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, economists talk about imputed rent. It's the rent you're not paying by living in your home that you own. That's a, another way to look at it. But I think putting down roots, saying this is my place and working with your neighbors mm-hmm. is a high value proposition for America. And, you know, 62% of Americans appear to agree with that. That's a large number. Yeah, it's the difference between living together and being married. But, uh, <laughs> when you uh, when you get married, you have uh, you have made a certain commitment to your partner that you're going to be there for the long haul of your relationship, and you're going to um, stick it out when things get rough, and you're going to work together to improve the world around you. So I, I do think there's I think I think it's true. Back in the I guess it was the Reagan administration, right? Under Jack Kemp, um, there was a push to uh, sort of modeled on what Thatcher was doing in the UK to get people to own their own public housing, to basically to buy, but, you know, turned into owner-occupied property rather than, than public housing. How did that work out from your perspective? Well, I, I admire Jack Kemp and the Kemp-Roth tax bill was an important watershed in American history. He was an inspiring personal figure, but he was wrong about converting public housing projects into private ownership. Uh, the Kenilworth Houses in Washington was his, his uh, signal project. He, here's why he's wrong. These were aging structures with high maintenance needs that were going to be, quote unquote, owned cooperatively, not the individual units, mm. as with the council houses in Britain which were more like row houses and lent themselves to this in a better way. They're going to be owned cooperatively by extremely poor people. I call it lemon capitalism. Hmm. If you know the phrase lemon socialism, that's when the grandson, the Pennsylvania Railroad gets taken over by the United States government because it's bankrupt. Lemon capitalism, lemon socialism. This is lemon capitalism. We're going to let you own something that has outrun its useful life. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. Thanks a lot. (laughs) We'll let you own something that has negative value. Negative value. Uh, negative value. Yeah. yeah. You know, I personally would like to see us disengage from public housing and to get out of the business rather than continue to st- chase utopian dreams, which I fear uh, Secretary Kemp was doing. I, I proposed, in fact, I proposed this in testimony before, before the uh, Senate Banking Committee to buy out public housing tenants. Senator Toomey said, are you saying reparations? I said, yeah, kind of. Kind of, yeah. I'll I'll own up to that, you know, in the following way. I think we've robbed those tenants of the chance to accumulate wealth through these artificially low rents, long tenures. 10% of New York public housing tenants have lived there for 40 years or more. I'd buy them out based on how long they've lived there. Let them take the money and move somewhere. And then let's sell that land and put it to a non-frozen new purpose, see who wants to use it for what, and get out of this business altogether. Mm. Fascinating. Now, do you see that part uh, as part? I know you've written some on policy gridlock around housing. Is this part of your thinking around the policy gridlock that needs to be broken? Yeah, I, I have a phrase I use in the book called the frozen city. What freezes a city? It's when Particular uses and types of uses are frozen in place, unchangeable. 
Public housing is a frozen city. Zoning is quite frozen. Uh, Robert Ellickson, who's at the Yale Law School, has, has documented that 90% of the single family homes in year one, and he went back to look at them some years later, they were still single family home lots, didn't change. So that's a form of gridlock. Yes, we can't get ourselves in gear to unlock the what may be a greater potential for new uses. And so people say, well, what will happen to the people in public housing? Where will they go? I say, I don't know. Give them some money and they'll figure it out because mm-hmm. people can figure things out. Mm-hmm. Well, what about what might be built there? Maybe it's going to be just for rich people. I said, there aren't an infinite supply of rich people. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but maybe it's going to be put to some new commercial or industrial use that provide new jobs for a whole range of people. That's what cities, when they're unfrozen, do. They throw up all kinds of new and unexpected uses. Yeah, that's so interesting, right? It's another example of the fetish for planning and this belief that we can predict with any kind of accuracy what happens next. You know, that every, every action taken or not taken it creates the future, whether we want that future or not. And we won't have these housing units. And what are we, how are we going to replace these housing units becomes, right. the, becomes the driver rather than an imaginative process that says there might be all sorts of positive uh, feedback loops that we can't in our planning minds <laughs> foresee uh, or appreciate how they might be better or different than what we've got right now. Right. Who who predicted that Google would be a thing, that Facebook would be a thing? Cities were still chasing after auto plants as their salvation. This, this is foolishness. And we don't know what, I mean, in New York, uh, there are uh, public housing projects along the Brooklyn waterfront. It's incredibly valuable real estate. Who knows who, who would build what there with what positive benefits? So I want to contrast this a little bit. You have expressed some skepticism about, I don't know if it's exactly Raj Chetty and his studies so much, but it, yeah. But I mean, basically, Chetty's uh, moving to opportunity, his study of the moving to opportunity program. How is that? How is the moving to opportunity program different than what you have described or? Maybe it isn't different, and you just have problems with Chetty's findings. Well, just to review, uh, Raj Chetty, he was a superstar economist, sometimes at Stanford, sometimes at Harvard. I can't quite keep track of him. At Harvard now. Yeah. Yeah. And he reanalyzed a program called Moving Up to Opportunity that HUD uh, sponsored in the early 2000s. And there had been a study done by uh, uh, Jeff Liebman at Harvard, which found that this idea of moving poor people to wealthier neighborhoods hadn't really made much difference in the lives of the poor. Chetty said, no, I looked more closely and there's a subset of poor families who did better and their psychological health was better. Uh, those with children under 12, those children had better outcomes. And therefore, we should think more uh, positively about the program. And this study had uh, was widely taken up by, again, those who were chasing the utopian version of housing policy, the, the philosopher's stone, I call it, the successors to public housing. If we helped move poor families to what are being called today in the Biden administration, high opportunity zip codes, 
high opportunity neighborhoods, we can address the problems of poverty and underachievement. Well, we can get into Chetty's methodology. Was there a self-selection, those who chose to move versus those who chose to stay? But I don't want to, we'll leave that for the public policy uh, methodology mavens. My problem as somebody who tries to keep his eye on the real world, is this is highly impractical and ill-advised. And I'll tell you why. First of all, how many low-income families are we going to move to Scarsdale or Chevy Chase until those places are the same as the neighborhoods they left? Is every neighborhood that's above a certain income threshold going to be asked by the federal government to accept a certain amount of extremely low-income households? How would this work on a grand scale? Seems to me highly impractical, likely to create a backlash because of the fact that most neighborhoods are based in socioeconomic commonality. The census tells us this is true. It reflects Americans' preferences at all levels, not just the highest levels, but at all levels of income. And the idea, moreover, that the only way poor people will prosper is by being moved to high opportunity neighborhoods gives up on the idea that poor neighborhoods can also be good neighborhoods. Why should that be a contradiction in terms? The Lower East Side that Jacob Reese thought he was shining his muckraker spotlight on, well, it had public baths because there weren't enough inside bathrooms. Okay, we'll build public baths. That was a good outcome at the time, a public good. It had public parks funded by the philanthropist Jacob Schiff. It had good public schools that produced Edward G. Robinson, just for example, out of the Lower East Side, and a whole lot of Nobel Prize winners and whatnot. You know, So the combination of safe streets, good schools, clean parks, and other public goods, that's what we need to be concentrating on, rather than giving up on the idea that we can only help poor people if we move them. Then they get to be guinea pigs in this experiment where right. they enter neighborhoods through the poor door. Who wants to be that person and yeah. be patronized that way? Right. So uh, I, I take your point about sort of like, oh, we are going to move you. We are going to specify where you move. Like you, you're here and we're going to move you. Sometimes in the, in the moving to opportunity program, it really wasn't hard. The neighborhoods were often sort of cheek by jowl. It wasn't, um, you weren't moving them all that far. But what I want to press you on a little bit is, is to help distinguish between what you talked about earlier in terms of we're going to buy people out and they are going to get this chunk of money and then they are going to decide where they're, where they're going. Is that the, dis- the distinguishing factor between moving to opportunity and what you're proposing is the agency of the people who are being that are moving rather than being told where to go? Or, you know, we've identified these zip codes that you should move to. That's certainly part of it. My idea of this buyout is partly to get us out from under public housing and looking for a practical way to do that. But but yes. I, I think that ha- people having the choice of where they want to lo- move is, is, is a good thing. And, and I also think in terms of high opportunity zip codes, and I think this will relate to work that you've done yourself uh, at the Labor Department and, and elsewhere, we have to recognize that the process 
the life choices, the personal choices, the personal responsibilities that allow you to move to a quote-unquote better neighborhood are important in and of themselves in leading to better life outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if you have two incomes in your family, if you discourage your children from dropping out of school, if you follow the famous success sequence and defer childbearing, don't drop out of high school, you are preparing yourself. If you're thrifty, you're preparing yourself to move to opportunity because you're creating opportunity for yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. idea that you have to move to get opportunity to me is offensive. Yeah, no, it, it's not certainly not. You have to move. I, I agree with you completely. We are in full and violent agreement on this that, <laughs> you know, that the what's missing in so much of low income America, and that's not just cities, that's, you know, it can be rural areas, it can be, and it's not restricted by ethnicity or race either. But what's frequently missing is this idea of not owner, not necessarily ownership of property so much as ownership of life. You know, yes. who's who's in charge here of my life? Am I in charge, or is are am I just being moved around by forces that I can't see and don't understand and think uh, they know and, best for me? Yeah, yeah. No, that's I, I agree completely. I think that is the central flaw, uh, really, of our public welfare system is its lack of attention to, as John Cusey, also an AEI person, but uh, John Cusey said to me, it's, it's agency, not agencies that make the <laughs> difference. And finding ways of fostering that, empowering, you know, these are these terms, we say them so much, they, they lose their power, right? But it's critical that we we structure our, our policies in a way that puts that agency right at the center, the development of agency right at the center. Not us tell you what you need to do, but for you to discover what you need to do and then do it is a challenge. Right. And I think what I'm saying to add to that, that it's about personal agency and interpersonal agency. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you have community, you're pursuing what I'm calling here interpersonal agency to work cooperatively right. with your neighbors right. in this positive circle to make a good community. Yeah, and no, both, I, I both are important. Yeah, no, you can't even distinguish between the two of them. There's, you can't develop agency without community. That's the, the paradox is that individuals need communities in order to develop their own sense of agency. They need models of agency. They need relationships that encourage agency, that set standards for, for personal agency. So, yeah, I, I, I agree completely. I think it's completely, we're in a very individualistic culture. So we, you know, we're like right. people without, we were like people without belly buttons. We don't have a past and we aren't connected to a future. And, and that isolation isn't good for us. Yeah, right. I, so I, I am de-emphasizing individualism, or at least balancing that. Yeah, uh, against these other values. You're yeah, right. I agree, and it is a balance. Um, you, nobody wants to see their individuality stamped out by the community either. So you've been very generous with your time. We need to wrap this up, but I have one more question, and I, I kind of want to bring this conversation to a full circle here, which is: I think everybody, since we're on the topic of agency, 
every person has another person or persons that kind of delivers the idea of agency that recognizes the individual gifts. I won't say unique because unique is a tricky word, but uh, that recognizes the individual gifts and encourages the application of those gifts. Who was that? Who was that person? Who are those people for you who said, Howard, you can do this. I see this in you. I mean, I know, I know immediately I've got like three people in my life who did that for me. And I want to know who those people are for you. Well, first of all, my father, Bernard Husick, with whom I talked about everything, who read so widely and exposed me to so many great writers who, you know, Arthur Kessler is all talks on Arthur Kessler. Wow. You know, who thinks about him anymore, but Will Durant. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the books that were in my house. And this was a, a modest subdivision in suburban Cleveland. I write about it in the book filled with Hannah Arendt, you know, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, incredible. My grandmother, who set the example of being very involved in charitable causes, she was the leader of the Pioneer Women of America chapter in Cleveland, Ohio. It was a labor Zionist group, and mm -hmm. she was the president. She was a peer of Golda Meir's, who was the president of the organization in Milwaukee. So the idea that you can be a leader mm -hmm. in the philanthropic space, I guess. Mm -hmm. She went to school in Cleveland with Langston Hughes. And then my 11th grade English teacher in public high school in the South Euclidehurst public school system, Helen Greggett, a, a native of Nyack, New York, an Italo-American who married a, a waspy guy and shed her Italian name. And she told me, you can write. And uh, you should. Terrific. Perfect answer. Howard Husak, thank you so much for your time today and for inspiring us with a different vision for the prosperity of the city, which I'm, I'm super excited about. Thank you for your good questions and your interest. Great to have you as a colleague. <laughs> Same. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working. <laughs>